Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week, we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, welcome to episode number 161 of the Healing Pain Podcast. This week, we are bringing awareness to the important topic of stigma and chronic pain. People living with chronic pain are often stigmatized in healthcare settings, although they are not alone. Patients with various medical conditions, those with mental illness, people who use substances, people living with HIV, refugees and immigrants, even patients with poorly controlled diabetes can all be subjected to stigma. Here to discuss stigma and chronic pain is Dr. Whitney Scott. Whitney completed her PhD in clinical psychology at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. She is currently a postdoctoral fellow in the health psychology section within the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience at King's College London. Her research focuses on psychosocial factors, including experiences of injustice and stigma related to functioning and quality of life in people with chronic pain. Whitney also investigates psychological treatments such as acceptance and commitment therapy for people living with chronic pain, and she is finishing up a fellowship that developed and evaluated a version of Online ACT for people with HIV and neuropathic pain. This is an important topic for those living with chronic pain and, of course, for the practitioners who treat them. Both Whitney and I appreciate you tuning in and downloading this week's episode. Of course, if you want to continue the conversation, make sure to join the Integrative Pain Science Institute Community Facebook page. You can find us at www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash IPSI community. That's www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash IPSI community. Okay, let's meet Dr. Whitney Scott and learn about stigma and chronic pain. Hey there, Whitney. Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. It's an honor to have you on this week. Hi, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. Whitney, tell us how you got interested in working and researching chronic pain and becoming a pain psychologist. Yeah, so I guess it's something that I've been interested in for a really long time now. So I guess sort of personal background, my mom's lived with chronic pain for as long as I can remember. So it's always something sort of I experienced and sort of saw the impact of. And then when I was studying psychology in my undergraduate degree, UBC, I came across a health psychology course and we had an assignment to sort of write about psychosocial factors related to a chronic health condition. So I picked chronic pain given sort of what I just talked about. And that sort of really got me fascinated and talked at how it's sort of something so seemingly a medical problem could actually have these really profound psychosocial influences. And then I was really quite lucky in that Ken Craig was at UBC in the department where I was studying. So when it came time for our research project, I reached out to him. He was wonderfully supportive and sort of got me hooked into pain psychology sort of set me on a track for doing a PhD in the area. And tell us where you are today and where you're working. Yeah. So I'm currently based at King's College London in the health psychology section, which is within the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience. And I'm also, I have a sort of a split position where I'm also based at the input pain unit at St. Thomas's Hospital. So I do a mixture of research and clinical work. Mm. So how is it kind of wearing two hats, taking one off sometimes and putting the other one on? And do they relate to each other, of course, or... At times, you know, a bit to manage. Yeah. So, I mean, it is definitely really quite busy, but I'm really quite fortunate in the sense that positions like this are quite rare, I guess. And in my case, my research very much feeds into the clinical work that I do and vice versa. 
And I guess the nice thing is, is that research is very much long term. So setting up and running a study takes a long, long time, whereas clinical work is really quite immediate. So you almost immediately or very soon after something you've done has been impactful or not. So sort of having that long versus short term feedback is quite nice in a sense. And there's lots of synergies in the sense that when I go to clinic, we have a wonderful team of sort of psychologists, physios, nurses, OTs, and the doctors. And they're sort of constantly coming up with ideas that are really interesting for research, as well as sort of seeing patients that inspire sort of new ideas. And then obviously the research can feed back into the clinical work. So it all kind of marries up quite nicely, but yeah. it's been quite busy. And you mentioned those positions are rare. Yeah. So of course, congratulations on, on landing that. But are they rare in psychology in general, or is it really, when you, when you mention that, kind of more of the chronic pain space? Yeah, I think, I mean, I can only sort of speak from my experience, but probably in psychology in general, and it may be sort of a context thing as well. So being in sort of the US, UK versus Canada and so on. But yeah, I think in general, um, people tend to go sort of more research or more clinical because both positions are quite demanding. And it really requires that institutions kind of come together and sort of carve out time for both. So I think expecting a clinician to do research just on the side of an immensely busy day already, that's something that the infrastructure and support needs to be in place for. So in that regard, that's kind of why it can be quite difficult to do both of those things. Your research work has focused on the areas of injustice and chronic pain, acceptance and commitment therapy for chronic pain, pain management in the HIV population. How did you specifically become interested in working with stigma first? Yeah, so I guess it's in my head, it seems like a really logical sequence of events, um, but it, I guess, requires a bit of an overview of what I've done. So uh, in my PhD, I looked at this concept in collaboration with my supervisor, Mick Sullivan at McGill, that he sort of coined a perceived injustice, or we might call it sort of injustice experiences. And this is really the sense that someone living with pain, and we sort of did it in the context after injury, that they perceive pain and injury-related losses as sort of significant, as unfair. And in some cases, there might be someone else to blame for those losses. If you think of the case of like a whiplash injury following a car accident, that the other driver might be sort of a clear source of blame. But something that also sort of came out in the questionnaire that Mick developed were a few items around no one understands the severity of my illness or no one's taking my illness seriously, to sort of paraphrase. And that sort of mapped onto another construct that we didn't sort of directly measure or assess, but in validation and sort of drawing these threads together, um, this sense that people kind of, when pain is, to use the term that I actually dislike, medically unexplained or it doesn't have sort of a clear medical cause, that's kind of a situation in which others might perceive that maybe pain isn't as severe as someone might be indicating. So all of these kind of constructs came together in sort of my interest and then sort of thinking about what's actually not measured by some of these constructs are things like social exclusion and embarrassment or shame. So if you look at the injustice measure, there's not really anything about embarrassment or shame or actually others actively excluding the person from sort of social scenarios, which is tapped more in by stigma-related measures. And then just to sort of put this story together. So after my PhD, I was sort of interested in how can people respond to adversity in a way that still appreciates what they want out of life and where they can make a life that's meaningful alongside the real challenges that come with pain. So that's kind of how I got connected with Lance McCracken doing work on acceptance and commitment therapy. Uh, so we've done sort of a number of studies looking at in sort of general clinic procedures, how do people do after um, sort of a course of acceptance and commitment therapy from a multidisciplinary team. And then sort of my current fellowship that I'm finishing up looked at applying acceptance and commitment therapy specifically delivered online uh, for people with HIV and neuropathic pain. 
which really was a population that has high rates of pain and pain impact. And typically the research and studies have really looked at this from a biomedical viewpoint because they just assume that the pain was caused by the HIV. Therefore, give some analgesic medications. That's the end of the story. There's been a few small trials, but there's been sort of issues with recruitment and retention and things like that. To kind of wind this whole story up is we can't really study HIV without understanding stigma. And stigma has been so fundamental to understanding how HIV has affected people sort of psychologically. And managing stigma has been so important to sort of curtail the epidemic and ensure people have access to appropriate treatment. So kind of all those things came together in looking at how stigma is relevant both for HIV and pain, as well as stigma might be relevant for chronic pain in general. Excellent. I just want to give people an overview or a little taste of some of Whitney's research articles. We'll include links to these in the show notes. You can, of course, Google these and find these on PubMed. Here's one, psychosocial factors associated with persistent pain in people with HIV, a systematic review of meta-analysis, which was in the August 2018 pain journal. Measuring stigma in chronic pain, you can find that 2019 journal of pain. Injustice appraisal, but not pain catastrophizing mediates the relationship between perceived ethnic discrimination and depression and disability in low back pain, September 2019 journal of pain. And an interesting one on fatigue and acceptance and commitment therapy for the treatment of chronic pain and its association with enhanced psychological flexibility. Again, September of 2019, the Journal of Systematic Review. So obviously for a relatively new researcher, really, really interesting and deep work, which is informing more research as well as clinical practice. Do we have a a good measure for measuring stigma in, I guess, research and or clinical practice? Yes. One of those papers, I think it might have been the first one you mentioned, was sort of a preliminary attempt for us to sort of evaluate the psychometric properties of a measure. And I will say, um, so the measure is called the stigma scale for chronic illness, I believe off the top of my head. And it's actually something that was developed by other research groups outside of the field of pain. So it was initially validated in the context of neurological conditions like Parkinson's and MS. We basically, the nice thing about it was one, that it's a brief measure, which we always need for clinical work. We just have so much to ask people. We can't really sort of be burdening them with so many super long measures. So that was sort of reasonably well validated in neurological samples we decided to effectively take the same questionnaire to see how the psychometrics work in a chronic pain sample. And sort of, we just left sort of the introduction where it talks about general illness the same, so it could be comparable across the both. And the other nice thing about this measure is that it measures both what's called sort of enacted and internalized stigma. So enacted stigma is sort of how other people treat a person who is perceived to have sort of a negative attribute. So something like pain, how do others actually treat the person in pain or How does a person in pain perceive others to treat them? And then internalized stigma is when a person comes to believe negative attitudes that others hold about themselves. So they start sort of believing that negative attribute is true. So in a really efficient measure, we can kind of tap both things. And when we did sort of the psychometric analyses, it sort of shows that the data or the items are sort of reliable and that the measure associates with things we would expect it to, like injustice appraisals or that injustice measure as well as core outcomes of interest for pain, so things like pain-related interference and depression. We did that in about a sample of, I think, about 300 people, so that's sort of preliminary. We also looked at, in the context of the Input Pain Management Program at the service that I work at, we offer sort of an interdisciplinary acceptance and commitment therapy-based program, and we looked, and this was entirely exploratory, just out the potential change from pre- to post-treatment just to see if treatment might at all be targeting that. Obviously, this is observational. We can't say for sure. But what was interesting, so when we just looked at a total score across both enacted and internalized stigma, there was no change. 
And you might sort of assume that in a group-based treatment where other people have pain, where you're learning to sort of open up to the difficulties of pain, that might either provide some validation or it might sort of impact on stigma itself, at least internalized stigma. And then when we did sort of look at just the internalized subscale, we did see sort of a small amount of change, but inactive stigma didn't change at all. So that's sort of an interesting question. Do we actually need to be looking more broadly at how we target stigma? So looking at from the research side of things, this is a measure that we could look at maybe correlating stigma with pain outcomes, as well as maybe exploring treatment change on stigma. I think it's maybe a little bit too early to start using the measure in clinical practice. For example, we don't have things like sort of a clinically meaningful score just yet. And I'm always sort of of the opinion screening for something is only useful if you have an intervention to then target it. So there would be no sense giving this measure to people clinically if you then don't know how to intervene. Yeah. So it's interesting you mentioned that the research that you did around stigma and that self-report measure was done in the context of a multidisciplinary act-informed pain center, basically. (laughs) So my question, I think a lot of people might be wondering, obviously it makes sense that treating stigma is definitely the place of a psychologist, but how are other members of the team able to potentially influence the outcomes of that stigma or that perceived injustice through the context of multidisciplinary care? Yeah. And I always just to sort of pick apart something here, I always think the difficulty with self-report measures where we're looking at people's experiences, because we kind of put that word perceived in because that's all we can really have. We sort of label measures as perceived injustice or perceived stigma, but we also have to sort of fundamentally recognize that people's perceptions are often rooted in things that are happening in the world around them, at least to some degree. So just to sort of clarify that it's not sort of only the onus on the individual, but there are sort of these systemic issues that are maybe feeding into that. And then sort of whose responsibility is it to address stigma? I actually don't think, I mean, psychologists may be well-placed to talk about the impact and sort of you might help foster things like self-compassion, but I absolutely don't think that that's only the realm of the psychologist. I think every single member of the healthcare team can very much in various ways help to mitigate or reduce stigma. And I think in some cases, just looking at the language that we're using, so not framing symptoms, for example, as medically unexplained or psychogenic is something that I sometimes see in referral letters because that in itself is a very stigmatizing term. Our physiotherapy and occupational therapy team, they very much help people sort of identify what's important to them, activities or movements they want to do, and they will sort of explore what's showing up for people. And often what's showing up, for example, if I don't want to use public transportation or I'm afraid to be on public transportation, yes, there's a worry about re-injury and pain increase, but often there's a worry about what others are going to think if I need to ask them for a seat or other people are staring at me because I walk differently. So I think all members of the healthcare team are very well suited and skilled to kind of help people address stigma, at least the internalized stigma, and maybe even helping them to speak out against inactive stigma and call for that sort of societal change. And is ACT the ideal vehicle to be, I guess, targeting stigma and injustice within that multidisciplinary team or might something like compassion-focused therapy serve better with this particular population? Yeah. So I don't think we're at sort of a stage where we can say one approach is better than the other. I mean, there are sort of theoretical conceptual arguments that you might suggest that one approach would be well-suited, but we just don't have the data to say one is better. And we know sort of from psychotherapy research in general, generally what pans out is most bona fide treatments would be suitable. That said, act in the sense that it recognizes, and I think it's fundamentally validating. So it's not saying People are thinking unhelpfully or irrationally or that they need to change their thoughts before they can change their actions. It's saying, actually, this stuff might be really very difficult 
what are the choices that you want to make so your life can be more the way you want it to be? And what will you bring along with you on that journey? And part of this might be saying, I'm having this thought that's really well rooted in my experience that this is unfair, that people are treating me poorly, but what do I want to make of my life nonetheless? Does it actually mean that I, it's meaningful to me to speak out against this and try and make change? Or do I focus my directions elsewhere and not get so caught up in this? So from a clinical point of view, that has always sat better with me and perhaps other approaches that try and weigh up the helpfulness of the belief and the pros and cons of that belief. Similarly, some compassion-focused therapy, I think, dovetails quite nicely with ACT and bringing that sense of kindness to oneself, even though that might be a really difficult thing to do. And even though the world is not necessarily a kind place, I think those approaches definitely require more investigation and seeing how we can foster the processes that might mitigate the impact of stigma. Excellent. So you started to kind of dance around the hexaflex a little bit there. (laughs) So you started talking about acceptance in some of the work, obviously. You started to compare a little bit between cognitive diffusion Mm -hmm. and thought restructuring, which is more of a traditional uh, CBT construct. Mm -hmm. And you started talking about compassion, which there are six processes in ACT. And some people kind of mention like this seventh kind Mm -hmm. of unspoken about process, which is compassion. How does a, let's say, protocol of ACT infuse compassion into the treatment? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think, I mean, obviously we need sort of more strict protocols or something like a randomized controlled trial, but ACT in itself would be less of a protocol-driven therapy than a process-driven therapy. So in that sense, if you're looking in sort of real-world clinical practice, you might see sort of two clinicians or two clinics delivering ACT quite differently because we kind of conceive of it as sort of a strategy that's going to foster psychological flexibility is an ACT strategy, and that could look various different ways, rather than maybe being quite rigid about you do X, Y, Z, for example. So compassion definitely fits in. I think the processes like openness, my thoughts, feelings, etc. So if I'm being really judgmental to my towards myself, I can be open to those thoughts and feelings. Also, in my values, I might be able to outline that actually I want to treat myself and others with kindness. So I'm reflecting compassion within that. If we sort of take actually from compassion-focused therapy, I think a lot of the exercises, in some ways, they are sort of fostering a psychological flexibility as well. So in that sense, they could be very much embedded within what we would be doing in ACT in any case. Yeah. There's a lot of mindfulness in ACT, of course. Certain protocols use mindfulness and there's a decent amount of perspective taking, which can help people with compassion. So they're all important part of ACT, as well as you mentioned, other types of psychological interventions. Can you give us an example either of how a practitioner changed their approach or a patient potentially you saw or someone who was involved in multidisciplinary care where obviously they started to change their view of either injustice or the stigma related to living with HIV? Yeah, maybe not so specific to the HIV context, although so I will say we're doing a current treatment trial looking at the feasibility of online act for HIV. And in that, we actually do specifically have a session on stigma and self-compassion and how we kind of relate those things. That's sort of how we've dealt with it in the HIV context. More sort of generally in the chronic pain context, I remember, so I sort of started my relationship with Input by observing one of their programs. I did a bit of a lab exchange during my PhD, and I sort of sat throughout the multidisciplinary program for three or four weeks watching. And it's always sort of stuck with me. Um, There was a participant on that program who he made just fantastic sort of improvements in his functioning and sort of the activities he was doing. He kind of said at the end, the thing that really changed for him was that it didn't really matter what people thought. So he sort of used to be really preoccupied that if he was doing more, people wouldn't believe him. 
which is really a fundamental thing in chronic pain. It's an invisible illness. How do you reconcile someone being in enormous pain and then actually increasing their activities? But that, in a sense, is exactly what pain management does. So for him, I guess, making space for the fact that other people may judge him and he can still work towards things that he wanted to be doing. So that was really quite profound in how we can actually help people in their adaptations to some of the adversity that comes with pain. But as perhaps we'll talk about in a bit of the mind, I don't think that that's enough, that I think the onus is too much on the individual. And we also need to start looking broader in society at how we tackle some of these stigmatizing and unfair sort of treatment of people with pain and other conditions like HIV. Yeah, well said, because within that biopsychosocial model, the social is the one area that's probably researched the, yes. the least when yes. where we have interventions to help people. Mm-hmm. And specifically, I think with the HIV population, they've been through decades of yes. awareness, really, of yes. one being from a terminal disease now to today, mm-hmm. a disease where people are living longer. So I think your work starts to really shift the focus toward one where people can live that rich full life, yeah. even though they have some pain potentially. Yes, yeah. absolutely. What do you currently see that's missing from stigma as far as, I guess, just healthcare in, in general? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Sort of about how we sort of conceptualize and study pain that the social aspect is very much missing. Maybe when we talk about the social, it somehow becomes individualized. So we take a psychosocial construct like stigma, and then we do, I'm a psychologist, so I'm guilty of this. We do an intervention at the individual level, and then sort of are in some ways wondering why it hasn't worked all that well. And I think really that multifaceted approach to particularly to something like stigma is something that is needed. So certainly we can make gains working with the individual, but I question how durable and how big those gains will be if these societal factors remain. And in that sense, I think the HIV sort of example is a really good one because they've sort of charted everything from a multifaceted perspective. And they've done so in a way that really involves and engages people living with HIV. There's really been this grassroots ground up kind of movement, really, whereby people had to express enormous vulnerability and openness to share that they were living with HIV so that other people felt okay and safe to do that as well. And in so doing that, they've really fundamentally changed. I mean, there's still massive stigma that comes with HIV, but they have really fundamentally changed what it means to be living with HIV. And that came from the ground up. And as part of the HIV project that I'm working on now, so we have fantastic patient partners, one of them by the name of Joe Josh. And so within the HIV sort of research world, there's now sort of conclusive evidence that if you're on antiretroviral therapy, if you're virally suppressed, you cannot pass on the virus. And they sort of, Joe and her colleagues have been really championing this campaign, U equals U. So undetectable equals untransmittable. Again, that's a grassroots thing. They've taken their voice and they've really been sort of spreading that far and wide. And that's the kind of initiative I think in part is, I mean, there are people in pain doing that, no doubt as well. But I think there's just so much to learn um, from the HIV community and world that's been so effective. And things like they recognize the fundamental role that law and policy play in how people are stigmatized. So obviously, there are certain countries that criminalize gay marriage and all of that. And living with HIV means fundamentally different things in different countries because of their different policies. So I think we also need to look at maybe in a less extreme way, but how certain policies like disability benefits policies will impact on someone living with chronic pain when they're sort of subject to quite demeaning reviews that don't appreciate that pain fluctuates and that you can increase functioning alongside pain. And that doesn't mean that you're no longer living with the condition and that you no longer need support. So sort of this multi-pronged systems level approach alongside the individual target for intervention. 
Beautifully said. I've been speaking with Whitney Scott, who's a psychologist at King's College London, as well as a researcher. Whitney, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing this important work around stigma and HIV. Please tell all of our listeners how they can learn more about you and follow your work. Yeah, I guess the easiest way is to check out my Twitter profile. So uh, my handle is at Whitney J. Scott. And on there, there's a link to my King's College London research profile. You can just click on and see more of my research if you're interested. Great. So we're going to link to some of the studies that I mentioned earlier. And we'll also link to her URL at King's College London so you can follow her work. And of course, make sure to share this podcast out with your friends and family who are interested in the topic of stigma and HIV related to chronic pain. It's an important topic that does not get enough airplay or research. So I'm sure Whitney would appreciate you sharing it out. I'm Dr. Joe Tad. It's been a pleasure spending this time with you. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. That's integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. Sign up to receive weekly updates, leave a review on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends. 